0: And turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, This is week 10 in our series through 1 Peter. Just a little background if you are joining us for the first time. Peter was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus and he was a lot like that friend or relative who's literally about to show up at your house for Thanksgiving this year, right? The guy that you kind of wish wasn't there but you know, number one, the fact that he is there means it's not going to be boring, and uh, you're, you're kind of glad he's there in a way, right? And, and that's, that's kind of Peter when we kind of get, when we read through the Gospels and read through some of the other letters that were written, that's kind of the view and the perspective we get on Peter in the span of three years, which is how long he traveled and was on tour and hung out and was trained uh, with Jesus. I mean, Peter just did some crazy things, three things of which were uh, he rebuked Jesus at some point, which in our vernacular means he told Jesus off one time. Um, He also betrayed Jesus during that three-year period. He also cut off someone's ear who he thought was getting ready to harm uh, Jesus. So this is just a mouthy, violent, just colorful guy, our boy Peter here, whose letter that we're going to be reading. But here's what we know also about Peter, and here's what we see when we read through the Gospels, is that Jesus loved Peter. Jesus loved Peter. He loved him in all of his arrogant and all of his adolescent failings. And what he ended up doing with Peter is he ended up sending him to be the lead pastor of a church planning movement that we are part of literally today like like, like right now like, like this church right now like you like sitting here right now it 's because Jesus took Peter, sent him out, and said, you know, we're just going to start planning some churches. And then someday in a couple thousand years, there's going to be this church in Ashland and Worcester called Substance. And they're just going to continue what we're starting here. And that's what Jesus did with Peter, and what that should do for us, as we're reading through this book, which was a book written to a bunch of suffering Christians who were under the heavy hand of persecution, what should that? What that should do to us is give us a, just a hopeful picture for us in 2016, as we see the patience that God has on His people, as we seemingly do everything in the world to try His patience like Peter did. And now the question that Peter has been addressing and answering in this letter he wrote, again, to suffering churches, is this. How do Christians live in a culture that is hostile to the Christian faith? And what is God's end game as He leads His people through it? So that's the question and sort of the answer that Peter keeps repeatedly go through. What's interesting is how timely this letter is for us in 2016, as we see, as we can kind of get sort of starting to get some hints at the way that the Christian faith is just beginning to be portrayed and handled in our culture, right? I mean, this is not our grandparents' Christianity anymore, which sort of had a place next to, you know, apple pie and baseball is America's favorite religious pastime. That's not really what it is anymore, the Tide Is changing and Christians are now, especially in other parts of the world, more so than what we experience here in America, Christians are now being faced with a world that is just completely, either completely hostile to people that hold to the Orthodox faith, or that's becoming hostile. There's things, there's opinions, there's views that we take because we get our truth and our beliefs from this book that are just not gonna vibe with culture. Nobody's gonna be super thrilled and stoked. Out of some of the positions that we take from this book by holding to the Orthodox faith. And the Bible is is actually pretty clear on the instruction that it gives for Christians to persevere when the world is actually being the world and pushing against those that hold to biblical truth. And conviction. And we've seen over the past three, four weeks, really, how Peter has been giving us just these practical examples, how he's been providing different categories for how to live righteously before people who don't share their beliefs, which is to endure with the kind of godly, patient, and submissive humility that Christ endured with through his own sufferings. So the category that Peter gives us, the example we learned last week, the example to follow as we find ourselves faced with opposition is no less than Jesus Christ. And that's because the call for all believers is to embody the kind of character that we see in Jesus Christ by living righteously before the face of God. One of the things… A Christian doesn't have the luxury of saying, one of the things that you don't really get to say is, sorry, that's just who I am. We don't really have the luxury of saying that because the gospel has saved us from being stuck in a perpetual place that doesn't honor and that doesn't please God. So none of it, so so some of you probably like said that to your spouse or your friend this week, you know, sorry, brother, that's just who I am. Yeah, you don't really get to say that. We don't have the luxury of saying that because it denies the sanctification and the growth and the rebirth that has happened in your heart that God is working in and through. So Peter's going to cap off his thoughts over the past three weeks um, when he's really been talking about what it looks like to submit in conditions that are less than ideal. And we kind of talked about what it looked like to submit to authorities that you don't agree with, that you don't vote for. He kind of gave us a category for what that looks like. Then he gave us some categories for what it looks like to submit in the workplace when you have a boss who's just kind of bossing you around. He's not being really fair and he's kind of punishing you and he's kind of controlling you and he's kind of leading you in directions that you feel like you need to stand up for your rights in and sometimes you do but Peter gave us a different category for how Christ reacted in similar situations. Then last week we saw it with husbands and wives and I appreciate that I didn't have any emails in my inbox and we started talking about why Needing to submit uh, to their husbands, and husbands needing to show honor and understanding. To their wives. Again, I mean, if you can send me an email, and I'm just going to say you know, what this says, and that, that hopefully should just end the, the entire argument right there on the spot. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to dive in today, and we're going to see how Peter sort of caps this off, and how he sort of says, so now that we've gone through this, now that I've given you these categories, here's what I'm instructing you to be. Here's the character that is necessary for you to live out so that these things become even possible in your life. So let's just do that. Let's pick up in verse 8, chapter 3. And he starts by saying, finally. So that's why we know that Peter is kind of, he's getting to a particular end point uh, that's going to serve what he's written to them before. This, And he says, finally, all of you, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Then he says in verse 9, he repeats what he said earlier. He said, and do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary... Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We're just going to stop right there. We're going to go to verse 12 today, and we're going to just step through those five character qualities that Peter is laying out for the church, the first one being unity of mind. Let's talk a little bit about what unity of mind doesn't mean before we talk about what unity of mind does mean. Unity of mind does not mean the church should look like minions from Despicable Me. That's not what it's talking about. It's not saying we all need to be carbon copies of one another. We don't need to dress the same, right? We don't need to all share the same interests. We don't need to enjoy the same hobbies. We don't need to think the same about everything. Some of you, even in regards to the church, okay, some of you will have differing views on how we do communion maybe, maybe the songs that we sing. Uh, Maybe you'll have some differing views on what our music is supposed to sound like, maybe Maybe even the length of our, of our sermons. Obviously, I'm totally kidding about that one. of I mean, you have anything to say about that, right? But, but here's what I'm saying. Like, do you know that that's okay? Like, that's okay to have some different thoughts about things that we would say are, are more non-essentials of the faith. But there are other things that we must have complete and total and unfailing and unwavering unity over. And those are the essentials of the Christian faith. Turn back with me to Ephesians. You want to make a left. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and read about what Paul laid out for the Ephesian church when he was saying what he he was advocating and encouraging and admonishing them to be as a church. (coughs) Excuse me. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read 1 through 6. And this is Paul writing the church of Ephesus. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, look at verse 3 here, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then he says this in verse 4 he says, There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And then in 5, he goes, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all in all. So what Paul is laying out to us, and you can go back to 1 Peter, what Paul is laying out is that we only find true unity. And that word just gets thrown around like all the time. Now, yeah, we need to be unified. But nobody really likes to talk about what it is that we're being unified uh, you know, uh, uh, over, right? Um, but Paul is saying we, we only find true unity by affirming those things that actually can unify us and that need to unify us by affirming the essential truth of God's Word. So here's what I mean. The church can have massively differing views on a, on a number of things. I mean, we really can. We can exist as people that think differently about some other areas, and that that creates a, a really healthy diversity in the church, but, all right, and there's a big but there, go with where you will about that line I just said, but when it comes to essentials of the faith, we have to believe and affirm what God's Word says, or we're not being the true church that God has actually built. We're not functioning as a church. So, as one body, as one body, as one family of believers, Paul says we should be eager to not just be all about those things that we disagree on so that we have our own things and we can think what we want about this particular view and we can sit down and we can argue and debate, you know, ad nauseum about all these things that we want to hold as being our little, you know, pet projects. What he's saying is that we should be eager, on the other hand, to maintain unity of spirit about those things that we need to be unified over. We are one body of believers who have the same spirit living inside of us. The same spirit that changed you, changed me, changed your brother, changes your sister. So we are a body of believers with one spirit. We have one faith, right? There's one faith that we hold to as evangelicals. There's one faith that we hold to, and there's one baptism. And what that one baptism means is that we, uh, we respond to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. And we signify that, we show that by obeying God, by being baptized, by dying to our sins, by being raised up to life in Christ. Those are the things that we have to have unity of mind over. But the flip of this is that it also means that we must have unity on things that the Bible clearly prohibits. I don't know, some of you guys might be familiar with this well-known Christian author this last week that came out with some views on the LGBT community that wouldn't vibe with what we consider the orthodox traditional view of those things, and there has just been a total firestorm in all sort of avenues and facets of the faith, people coming against people that are saying, hey, we as orthodox people in the faith that believe what the Bible says, there are some things about these views that she is sort of throwing out there that as the church we can't vibe with. Now that doesn't mean we're getting like a flame and like burning her at the stake, But it just means that if she is holding to view, if she is saying, I'm a part of this particular evangelical, Christ exalting, Orthodox faith community that we are all a part of, and she holds the views that fall outside of that, well, that's not unity for us just to say, you know what, it's cool. Just come in, think what you want, believe what you want. It's not what we believe, it's what this book tells us, and we affirm. As the anchor, as the anvil of our faith. Does that make sense? Unity of mind happens when the church doesn't drift from the clear biblical teaching of God's words, man. And you see a lot of drift. You see a lot of drift because trying to distance yourself from truths that are unpopular in the world feels safer. It feels safer in the world to go, yeah, I'm cool with that. But the problem is that it's not safer. It's actually not safer. James, the brother of Jesus, was in a, just a super good mood in his book when he wrote this. He said, you adulterous people. He said, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Becoming enemies with God is what that means. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. So having a unified mind with the world is great, except it creates disunity with God. And the earliest example we have of this is our first parents, is Adam and Eve. It's so interesting what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden when Eve decided to have a little late-night snack not approved under God's diet plan, all right? The tree, remember what it says, the tree looked good for eating. It looked good. God had said it was clearly not good, for eating. But it looked good for eating. Do you realize the Bible doesn't deny that? The Bible doesn't deny that Eve looked at that fruit, looked at that tree and said, dude, it looks like the money. Like it looks like like caramel apples up there. Like I just want to grab one of those things. I want to eat that. I'm saying that because I love caramel apples and it's the season. And I just started thinking about caramel apples right now as I was preaching. And they sound delicious, frankly. But it's amazing that Eve looked at the fruit and they don't deny that she thought that it looked Delicious. And so what happened was, in unity, listen, in unity, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And what they immediately had was what? Disunity with God. It does not matter what we think, it matters what God says. It matters if we'll obey what God says. It matters that we are unified under that truth, regardless of the consequences. That's unity of mind in the church. And then he goes on to a few more things. He talks about sympathy. He says, have sympathy. And what sympathy means is another word for compassion. And what we know about compassion is we know that Jesus was compassionate. Matthew 9 it tells of Jesus when he saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed, it says, and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Imagine a church. Imagine a church that was moved by the compassion of Jesus. And I, I think we are a church. I've seen evidence of that, of us being moved by compassion. And some of you guys have experienced this in the church in other in other ways, um, where you've experienced the compassion of a brother or a sister. I remember years ago, man, I was just going through just a massively tumultuous time. Um, and I feel like I had a lot of people around me, a lot of support. And a friend of mine just dropped everything. He drove two hours just to sit down and listen. Just to listen to me. Just to listen to me complain and cry and be angry and rant and rave. I mean, he, this dude had nothing in his power to fix anything but he had everything in his power to listen and remind me that I wasn't alone. And that's, that's what he did. That we would be a church who would be the first to show that level of compassion, to show that compassion to our church family, to our neighbors, showing care, showing concern, asking questions, taking the time to sit down and listen to a hurting brother or sister share their thoughts, express their fears, pour out their worries Help them find tangible ways to help reminding them of the love of Christ. Man, there's just no limit to this. There's no limit to the capacity that we have to be compassionate body of believers towards the body of believers that God has put you in. This is the heart of Christ. And then Peter just continues with brotherly love and tenderheartedness and a humble mind. He repeats his call for brotherly, brotherly love. We learn that in chapter uh, 1, verse Verse 22. Uh, brotherly love, which is to have a pure and earnest love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that plays out in tenderheartedness and humility of mind. Gosh, I remember this. One time I was younger. I, I mean, I was a lot younger. And, man, I was just, I was one of these kids that took a long, I was home, I was a homesick kid. You know the kid who like, you know, he has to go spend the night at the, at the person's house and he's crying all night because he just wants to be home and he wishes somebody would just take him home to his mom and dad. I mean, that, that was me, Right. And so my parents, knowing that and being a little on the cruel side, obviously, they sent me and my brother away to a a summer camp for like a week or so. And I remember I was just wrecked. I just was wrecked. I just, I just couldn't, I had no grounding. All I wanted to do was go home, but we were like, you know, eight hours away from home, and they, you know, they couldn't like fly in the personal helicopter to ship me back to the house, and there was no recourse. And my brother, my brother, my little brother, I'm talking about a dude of which, you know, we've kind of done that for a long time. I mean, I just remember the, just the clearest picture of this dude just having that tender heartedness towards me. And I remember sitting in our room. And I remember leaning against the wall, and I remember with my head down, I remember crying, I remember my brother walking up, sitting beside me, and putting his arm around me. I mean, whatever, we were 10 years old, but it was the tender heartedness of Christ. It might be the last time we ever embraced, I, I don't know. But a tender heart, a tender heart that's quick to respond with mercy and with grace. Man, I'll tell you, it's been so encouraging during this election season to see brothers and sisters responding to one another on social media with so much tenderheartedness and humility. Thank you for laughing at that because I'm being completely sarcastic and absolutely ridiculous right now. But a tender heart is one that's been tenderized by Christ, that isn't so quick to condemn or be harsh but sees one another in light of the undeserved grace that they've been given. Now listen, this doesn't mean that we just just excuse sin. That's not what it means. It means that we look at our own sin first, which then allows us to respond to other sin and the sin that we see out there with tenderness. And this kind of tenderheartedness, it requires humble-mindedness, the willingness to learn to admit faults, to own up to weaknesses, to have a growing awareness of your limitations and your sin. You know what's interesting about a humble-minded person? A humble-minded person just doesn't make everything about themselves. Jesus had a humble mind, which is odd considering he was God in the flesh. Like he had all the game, but he had a humble mind. His character was one of humility, which is why he didn't, as we see here in verse 9, he didn't repay evil for evil why he didn't pay reviling for reviling, but he blessed. Instead, he blessed like we are supposed to bless. Now, look, vindication, vengeance, is the default mechanism of our hearts, of our sinned against hearts. But it's interesting that nowhere in Jesus' life do we see him plotting against anyone. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While well, he was hanging on the cross, and we were murdering him. Jesus didn't plot. He prayed. In fact, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Paul said in Romans 12, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. And then Peter echoes this in verse 9. He says, On the contrary, bless. When those people are coming against you, when those people are doing things of which your first inclination is to repay and to get back, he said, Don't. He says, Be contrarian. In those moments, what does it mean to be contrarian? Other than to go against what comes most natural in your flesh, he says, "Be contrary to that." Blessed, for to this you are called. You are called to that new nature in Christ that you may obtain a blessing. What blessing? Well, he tells us here in verses ten through twelve. He quotes from Psalm thirty-four and he tells us what those blessings are. So let me pick up and read that in verse ten again. This is a quote from Psalm 10, from Psalm thirty-four, and it says this. Evil, The lie, the deception is believing that the secret to a good life is following your own heart rather than the heart of God, which is dying to sin and living to righteousness like Peter pointed out to us a couple of weeks ago. The unbearable consequences of this is that God's face won't be upon us, which is the only way for us to experience what the psalmist here is talking about when he says loving life, and enjoying good days. So there's a a sobering side here to what Peter is saying, which is if we're not a church living out the character of Christ, it means we're doing the opposite. It would be wrong to think that we can somehow be in a neutral state, right? The Bible doesn't speak of neutrality. That's an invention that we come up with, right? Eve saw that the food looked good to eat, right? What she was doing was trying to form a state of neutrality about what might be acceptable for her to do based on what she thought was right. The Bible doesn't ever speak in that kind of language. It doesn't speak of neutrality. We're not simply doing okay because we're not doing anything bad. The horror we're faced with here is seeing these beautiful Christ-like characters and virtues and realizing that if they're not being practiced, then in fact the opposite is occurring. Because sin is also not doing the good that we ought to be doing. You want something crazier? When that realization comes upon us, we know that merely an outward showing of these virtues, will only reveal an inward vice of unrighteousness. So, let me be real honest with you guys right now, not that I typically ever lie about anything. The easiest thing for a pastor to say, the easiest thing for a pastor is to say, would you all just shut up and do these things? Because your life would be better, which would in turn make my life better. But that's not what we do here because that's not what the Bible advocates. That's not the grace of God. You know what my job is? When we get lists like that of how to live out the character of Christ, it's my job to say, look to Jesus and live like Jesus. But you're not going to live like Jesus if you're not looking to Jesus. Here is Jesus, your Savior. Now do what He does if indeed He lives in your heart. Because what we need as a church, what we need to fulfill these character traits is we need conviction. We don't need cover-up. We need affection for Jesus. We don't need acting. I mean, listen, Christ-like character traits can easily come out of a compulsive heart instead of a convicted one. I mean, man, Christians, you people, I mean, you can be like Academy Award winning actors, right? Some of you guys just are able to put on incredible performances, right? And everybody's cheering. But underneath, it can just be compulsion. Well, how do we know? Well, because a compulsive heart works out of obligation. A compulsive heart works out of obligation, not understanding the grace of God that has allowed you to live for Him because He has made your heart so. But a Christ-like heart works from salvation. A cat doesn't meow to try to be a cat. A dog does not bark to try to be a dog. A cow doesn't moo to try to be a cow, and this is the worst illustration in the history of all sermons for all time. Mark that down back there, Casey. Worst illustration. Okay, thank you. My point is that a Christian lives like who? Somebody say it, I'm begging. Christ. A Christian lives like Christ with humble minded, tender hearted compassion and unity. A Christian speaks Christ. A Christian loves Christ. A Christian sings Christ. A Christian lives Christ because it's who they are. How does this happen? What happens because a Christian no longer believes that lies are the truth. And you know what, man? These passages, oh, these passages, they can be so easily glazed over. I mean, you have to wonder if they were glazed over to Peter's original readers who were suffering. Remember who he's talking to. He's admonishing them. He's saying, be humble, be tender-hearted." They were suffering. Peter drops all this instruction about submitting to unbelieving husband, about submitting to slave owners, about submitting to the government. I mean, I don't know about Peter, but these are are sermons that are hard to preach, really. And yet, listen, every division in the church is due to Christians who fail to live out the character of Christ. Maybe you guys have been part of a church that had a church split. Where everybody in the church became divided. Half the people left. Maybe they shut their doors down. Well, every division in the church is due to Christians who fail to live out the character of Christ. Whenever a Christian has an ungodly or an ugly reaction to another Christian, it's due to that person not living out the character of Christ. Every time a Christian is harmed by another brother or sister of the faith, it's because someone is not living out the character of Christ. Every time a Christian is shamed by the world for hypocrisy, it's because they're not living out the character of Christ. And the problem is that we read this list of virtues and we don't see any problem with not living them out to their fullest. To Peter's readers... Living like Christ costs something. But what's the cost for us living righteously? It's not that the world will hide their face from us. It's that God will if we don't. I remember my dad first came to the Lord. Again, I've told you about my dad, just this alcoholic, you know, just short-tempered, Cursed like a sailor, dude. It was such a radical transformation when Christ saved him. I mean, that dude lost almost all his friends. It cost him something to turn from his sin, to believe the gospel, not just believe the gospel, but live out the gospel. What do we know about Jesus? We know that on the cross, Jesus cried out to God. When all the sins of the world came on his shoulders, he said, why have you forsaken me? the price that Jesus paid for taking our sins wasn't so costly because the world rejected Him, but because in that moment God turned His face because of the sin of the world, our sin, had come upon Him. And so it's important for us to remember that sin is not just doing bad things that make us feel guilty, it's doing bad things because we're guilty. But, repentance, leads to righteousness, which results in relationship with God. I know that's a lot of R's I just laid out there for you. But that's the reason for doing all that Peter tells us. And it doesn't mean we won't be sinned against in the process. We don't live out the character of Christ in hopes of avoiding suffering. We live it out in the midst of suffering, with the hope that God's face will be upon us like it was Jesus. Jesus. And look what it says at the end here when he quotes the psalm. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Look what's on offering here. Look what's on offering here. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep from believing the lie that our own pursuits, our own righteousness is what's going to achieve it. That's what Peter's saying. And what this does, it just calls our innumerable pursuits for achieving the good life into question, right? I mean, you can go to Barnes & Noble right after church, or if that's archaic, you can click on Amazon Prime, and you can find endless resources towards achieving what they would call, what the world calls, the good life, right? Bunch of steps. You know, if I just wake up, if I follow this particular course, if I lock into this routine, if I have this particular kind of diet, if I surround myself with friends that will affect me and be influencers, that is the path to the good life. Peter says it's not. Peter says the truly good life comes from abandoning the evil and deceit that forms in our hearts that flows from our mouths and fools our minds into believing God is pleased when we follow those pursuits. And so maybe, maybe for some of you here, you realize when you hear this, maybe there's a level of conviction that rises up because you say, I can't amount to these things. I've tried. I haven't amounted to these things. Maybe it caused you to realize you've never really put your trust in Christ. And you realize that this good life, this mythical good life that you keep pursuing and attempting, you know what it feels like? It just feels like a thin veneer of stain that you put over an old piece of wood to try and continue to pretty it up. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe some of you have put your trust in Christ. But the very real challenges and the very real trials that you've experienced and they have caused bitterness to set in, and you found that you've fallen back into patterns of sin that characterize your old life, you desire to love life, you desire to see good days, who doesn't? But neither of those things are a reality for you. What's interesting about what Peter's saying here as we close is that we don't attain the good life by following our heart. How many of you guys have heard that? Oh, man, you just got to follow your heart. Nobody of you have heard that. Okay, I just made it up then. Don't do that. We don't attain the good life by following our heart or by doing what we think is right or by being good people or by being nice people. That's antithetical to every page in Scripture, it says here at the end of Psalm 34, it says, the Lord's eyes are on the righteous. Well, what makes one righteous? That's the question for us. It's turning from sin. It's believing in the finished work of Jesus on the cross where His righteousness becomes our righteousness, where His character becomes our character, As we pursue God with unity of mind, with compassion, with brotherly love, with tenderheartedness, with humility, how horrible would it be if Peter just said, just shut up and do these things. And maybe if God's in a good mood, He'll cut you a break. Peter, on the other hand, he gives us the assurance that the Lord's eyes are on the righteous, His eyes are on those who have received salvation from Christ and live from that salvation, and that His ears are open to their prayers. And what that means is that God is with us. Listen, we're almost done. God is with us in the process. He's with you. God is with you in that process. None of this happens in a vacuum. Pursuing Christ-like character does not happen in isolation or alone. God is always present in our pursuit of it. When it hurts, God hears. When it costs, God comforts. If you continued reading in Psalm 34, the psalmist says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And then later on in the the passage, it says, the Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. That's promise right there. That's hope for those who are tempting, who are striving because of God's grace, because of the love infection that they have for Jesus to live out the very character of Christ that is now in them and is now growing in them, is now progressing in them, that is now sanctifying them. And you know what? All of it's a reality, and all of it's a possibility for the Christian because of Jesus, because God never let His righteous Son. God never left His righteous Son. He will always be close to those who have been declared righteous by His Son's righteousness. Do you guys realize that? because God never left His righteous Son, He will always be close to those who've been declared righteous by His Son's righteousness. The call to be holy, because that's what this is, the call to be holy like God, it includes God in the package. So the call to be holy means God is helping you to be holy like His Son. It includes God. It includes a God who shows His face to the righteous and hears their voice. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the grace of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, so that when we see the character of which Christ lived his life, Lord, there is hope for us to grow in those things and to do the same, knowing that it pleases you, knowing that we don't walk through those things alone, but that you hear us and you help us and you're near to us. Lord, thank you for being near to us, Lord, be near to those who are going through trials and sufferings and moments in their life of which it feels like you are nowhere to be found. Give them the assurance that even when we don't feel things, it doesn't mean that you are not closely connected with us through every inch of every step that we take through them. Lord, remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. Remind us that we are able to live righteously because of Christ's righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would convict those who have not yet understood this, who have not yet turned from their sin, for those who have not yet received you and your grace. And I pray that you would do something in the hearts of men and women this morning that need to come before you, that need to turn from their sin, that need to be changed by the cross of Christ. Lord, let all of us be changed by that today as we go out and we seek to live out these character traits that exist in us because Christ exists in us. Lord, give us so much grace and give us so much joy because even when we fail, You don't cast us aside. You draw us back in to the sweetness of Your embrace. Lord, give us much encouragement in that, we pray, and all God's people said, amen.